Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. We'll be joined shortly by my good friend, Rachel Bovard of the Conservative Partnership Institute. Rachel is all in there on the tech issue. You're going to hear from her on tech, her development of thoughts on antitrust and all sorts of related matters. A couple of things that I want to talk about before we get to Rachel. So as listeners no doubt know by now, I live in the free state of Florida, which means that we were recently utterly slammed by one of the highest wind hurricanes to make U.S. landfall in a very, very long time. On a personal note, not my first hurricane experience. I actually was living in Houston, Texas during Hurricane Harvey, when Hurricane Harvey hit in, uh, when was that, August 2017. I remember waiting for hours at the grocery store that Friday before the weekend when we knew the storm was going to come. I waited for hours, then got in there and the shelves were empty. It was like a scene out of a horror film. I mean, like it, it was really just horrific stuff. I, I live in Miami. I live in Southeast Florida. Thankfully, this side of the state did not get totally wrecked. There, there were some tornadoes in Broward and Palm Beach counties, but the brunt of the impact happened on the Gulf Coast of Florida, Marco Island, Sanibel Island, Sarasota, Fort Myers was maybe the epicenter of it. The Tampa region definitely got hit. And it's bad. I, I, I mean, there were, the death toll is, as of right now, there are fewer than 100 Floridians who, who have died, which... I, you know, every every life is precious, but it is worth saying that that number certainly could have been a lot higher if the necessary preparations were not in place. I think as this storm gathered steam in the Caribbean, in the Gulf, and as it appeared that it was going to make a direct impact on the state of Florida, I think a lot of folks all across the mainstream media disgustingly actually started rooting for casualties. That was my read of some of the chatter that I was seeing on Twitter. I, you know, I, I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush. I'm not saying everyone out there on, on the left is an evil person. That's certainly not my stance. But I saw some folks in the cable news chattering class on, on social media who really seemed to be saying, if you were reading between the lines at least a little bit, that they were rooting for some sort of horrible, horrible, horrible situation to kind of bring down Ron DeSantis. And Ron DeSantis is the governor of Florida, and he has fought quite publicly with President Biden. And in the in the lead up to this storm, I think it was last Tuesday. So it was kind of right maybe the day before Ian made direct landfall on the Gulf side of Florida. President Biden had apparently made calls to a bunch of the relevant mayors on the Gulf side of Florida up in the panhandle before he even spoke with the governor. But as as the case may be, with the clarity of hindsight, we can now say that it appears that they ended up speaking quite frequently during it, that coordination between FEMA and the state of Florida was actually very, very strong. And for what it's worth, I have actually seen very little, or at least comparatively little, in the way of anti-DeSantis hit job commentary from the left-wing mainstream media, because there's frankly just nothing to hit him on. 
I mean, the guy, the guy was like grilling hash browns in a Waffle House for first responders. He went out of his way to kind of make sure that all the sheriffs in the various counties in the state were in constant contact with the state and by extension FEMA for any resources that they need. And this was a really strong storm. It was a category four, just a few miles per hour away from being a, a, a catastrophic category five landfall. There's no way to prepare for that. Obviously, nature is going to do what nature does. But it appears that Florida has handled this as well as it possibly could have. And, you know, good for Governor DeSantis and his team in that respect. One other thing that I want to talk about before turning the microphone shortly over here to Rachel Bovard, the judge that I clerked for, Judge James C. Ho of the U.S. Court of Appeals with Fifth Circuit, made a lot of headlines in a speech that he gave at the Kentucky Federalist Society convention last Thursday, where in a speech denouncing cancel culture, which is a theme of some of Judge Ho's other speeches, he kind of rose to our friend Ilya Shapiro's defense with respect to his Georgetown law saga in a, in a different speech at Georgetown, actually earlier this year. In his speech in Kentucky last week, Judge Ho kind of put in his specific crosshairs Yale Law School, which is the number one ranked law school in the country, and it has been the number one ranked law school in the country literally since the law school ranking started coming out in, I think, the late 80s. He put them in their crosshairs for a uniquely toxic and terrible cancel culture environment on campus, and, and he has various uh, citations, various anecdotes, uh, most of which have happened in the past year or two. I, uh, side note, I actually, I actually spoke at Yale Law School last April. I was I, I was debating a very good friend of mine. I was, I was, I was kind of hoping to get protest, to be honest with you, although the, the students were unfortunately quite well behaved on that day. But anyway, Judge Ho's speech in Kentucky last Thursday ends where he's trying to lead. He says that he is vowing not to hire prospectively. So current students are not affected, but prospectively, he will not hire any Yale Law student graduates to clerk in his chambers. And the idea here is to kind of be the first out of the gate to get other judges to ultimately sign on and to hopefully get the administration at the at the country's number one ranked law school, the the law school that kind of sends the most students to one day be law school faculty, to Supreme Court clerks, whatnot, to get them to change culture. Because if Yale can change culture at their law school, then all the other kind of pro-cancel culture institutions might be able to actually kind of fall in line as well. So I really, really hope that other judges follow Judge Ho lead. Good for him once again on leading the way here. I am yet again a very proud alum of Judge Ho's chambers. I wish him nothing but the best in this particular foray. We're going to come back to this, I'm sure, in future episodes because it's really worth paying attention to. But let's take it to a quick commercial break. We're going to be joined around the other side by Rachel Bovard. Stay with us. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome back. So as mentioned, it is my great honor and privilege to bring on this week a good friend of mine. That is Rachel Bovard. She is the she's formerly the senior director of policy at the Conservative Partnership Institute. She is less formally, I think, one of the queens of the conservative movement, more generally speaking. I kind of joke to Rachel that we overlap in probably a million different things. 
We're both on the advisory board of American Moment. We are co-hosts of the NatCon Squad podcast. And Rachel, just really grateful to be a friend of yours and be in the fight with you. So thanks so much for joining us this week. Well, likewise, I'm glad to be here. So we want to talk about tech and antitrust. That's kind of the issue that you've, I think, more so than any other issue focused on the past few years. But before then, let's kind of do a little more personal. So how did Rachel Bovard become Rachel Bovard? How did you become kind of one of the younger queens of the movement? Kind of walk us through that a little bit. <laughs> well, I don't know if I could say I'm a queen of the movement, but, um, you know, I started, I spent my whole career in the conservative movement, frankly. I came to Capitol Hill right out of college, um, right out of undergrad. I, I graduated from Grove City College and came right to Capitol Hill. And I spent 10 years there, um, sort of making my bones as a Capitol Hill staffer uh, in the House and then jumping over to the Senate. And the Senate is really where I started to dig into a lot of the policy and strategy and all the things I do now. Um, if you know people know anything about the Senate, staff are a little bit more empowered there. So it's easier to do those kinds of things. And I um, was in L.A. and then later legislative director for Senator Rand Paul before jumping over to the steering committee as the policy director there. The steering committee is sort of the um, informal committee of the most conservative members of the Senate. So it's usually like 12 or 13 senators. And where while working there, we advise them on policy, we advise them on strategy, particular to the Senate procedure, um, rules of the floor, that kind of thing. Um, so I did that for Pat Toomey when he was the chairman, Senator, retiring senator now from Pennsylvania, and then Senator Mike Lee. Uh, out of Utah. So um, that is really where I got involved in movement politics and sort of discovered my passion for the movement. Um, I left the Senate in 2015. I was at the Heritage Foundation for about a year. And then I left with a Senator uh, Jim DeMint just to start CPI uh, in 2017, myself and my colleagues, Wesley Denton and Ed Corrigan. And it's been great. This is really where we've managed to sort of flex our muscles, right? And do all the things, you know, you're, when you're your own boss, right? And you're working sort of hand in glove with movement legend, Jim DeMint, you're, you're able to be um, very aggressive in things you want to be aggressive about, work with the movement. Um, and we really do see ourselves as like a service organization to the conservative movement in DC and on Capitol Hill. So it's been really fun. So I think one of my first exposures to you before we, we became friends when I was kind of just admiring your work from abroad was your constant, often intense criticism of the Republican establishment, especially when it comes to things judi judicial branch related, federal society, judiciary. You've obviously often been a vociferous critic of uh, Mitch McConnell's over the years. I think that would be a, you know, a, a polite way of saying it. I, I guess how early on, how early on in your D.C. tenure did you realize that there was a massive systemic problem with the Republican establishment? So it's it's interesting to ponder this question because I get asked this question a lot also in the context of the new right, right, which is you and I are sort of like loosely affiliated with this movement, right, that is sort of re-looking re at conservative tactics and ideology and things like that. And, you know, the inherent skepticism that I've always had of the establishment can be linked to this similar point in time where I was also starting to become very skeptical of the dogmatic portions of the Republican Party. And this was back during my first job, actually my first tour on Capitol Hill, I was working for a congressman named Don Manzullo, who isn't in Congress anymore, but he represented Illinois 16th district, actually the district that Adam Kinzinger represents now. He's, he is also retiring, so he will not represent that district very much longer. But I was uh, staffing uh, Congressman Manzullo on the fin House Financial Services Committee. And he was a senior member of the committee. And so I was his staffer, and this was through TARP. This is through TARP. It was through the bank bailout. It was through um, 
all the various like industry bailouts and you weren't allowed to question it at the time but that was the first inkling to me that something was wrong here something was wrong in the country something was wrong with the republican party that i wasn't comfortable with and what i really mean by that is i was sitting in these briefings you know with hank paulson and tim geithner and listening to, to them tell us tell house republicans well if you don't bail out wall street if you don't save these these people who toppled the economy essentially everything is going to ruin and i watched the banks get bailed out wall street executives walk away with you know unscathed well my grandparents lost everything you know from the economy being toppled by these you know titans who were never held accountable and that to me was it just never sat well it never settled and you weren't allowed to question it right that back then it was all you know we were still in the sort of heyday of of bushism and and the ideological factions of the republican party but that sort of stayed with me and really i think at that point it became clear that my i was never going to be a lobbyist i was never going to like be in leadership i was always going to be someone throwing rocks from the outside and that's sort of <laughs> my role in the conservative movement is is as a critic which you know i think that's a good role yeah right? we, we need movement, that we need that yeah every movement we don't need sycophants we we also need critics and so i've i've sort of made my career in the in the latter yeah, no, we totally need that. I mean, I remember years ago when I was writing, even before I was a full-time employee there, when I was kind of blogging on and off of the Daily Wire, I wrote this one piece, maybe like five or six years ago. The, the conservative movement needs bomb throwers and bomb squadsmen. I mean, we need both, right? We need people to kind of kind of anchor the right side of the movement, and we need people to kind of, at times, when, when need be, kind of reach new converts, uh, which gets smaller and smaller, it seems, each year. But let's kind of continue. So you made your bones kind of throwing bombs and, and kind of holding the right side, like the, the flank of the movement, so to speak. And one of the third rails that you have really led on for the past few years is the tech issue. And it's a it was a third rail because, you know, for decades and decades, the technology industry, like any other kind of major American industry, was kind of just feeded with praise. I mean, deregulation, private enterprise, private sector, they can do what they want. You and I know how all of these talking points and all these kind of old dogmatic, to use your word, these old dogmatic slogans go. At what point did you realize that the technology industry had overstepped and that we on the right in particular kind of need to rethink some of what we were saying and doing. Yeah, this is also an interesting question because it was actually while I was working for Rand Paul, who, you know, is a, fits the mold of a libertarian, right? Who would never question, you know, uh, private industry, uh, you know, I think especially at that time. But for me, again, you know, the role I take for most things is just inherent skepticism of everything I'm being told. It's it's like a personality trait as well as professional trait. And um, one of the things that I noticed coming out of the Edward Snowden leaks was just how much these tech companies were playing a role in facilitating the mass surveillance operation that the Snowden leaks revealed. So particularly the prison program, you had the NSA and the CIA working very, very closely with Google, with, you know, Facebook, with Dropbox, with all these tech companies. And it it gave me pause because the government is you know obviously one thing but when it's allowed to fuse in this sort of cooperative element with the most the ma massive surveillance communications platforms the world has ever seen like you have something new here and that to me was a moment where i said we should look at and see what's going on here um this is you know there, there's a little bit of smoke here i don't know if there's fire but that was the impetus for my just curiosity around what these companies represented because you know not only were you was was that sort of government 
private entity cooperation unprecedented. The platforms themselves and, and the amount of data they're able to collect and what they're able to know about us was unprecedented. So to me, coming again from reflecting my boss at the time, that libertarian tradition, like it was confusing to me why more libertarians like weren't worried about this. Right. <laughs> like this seemed to be like a natural entry point. And as with most of my career, the things I get curious about are the things that I just sort of throw myself into and engage on and end up, and end up like poking a million hornets nests. And that's what actually happened here as well. <laughs> so walk us through that then. So, I mean, the, the Snowden leak was a while ago, right? I mean, that was the summer of 2013. 2013. It was June 2013 or May or June was right around then. And, uh, you know, the Section 230 conversation when it comes to the tech didn't really pick up until like 2019, I think, honestly, I mean, maybe 2018. So uh, what happened in kind of those interme in those intermediary years? You kind of just do like a like a deep dive on antitrust theory. Do you nerd out deep in the weeds? I mean, what, <laughs> like, what, what was happening deep in the bowels of the Rachel Bovard office back then? So I don't even you know, I didn't even get into as far as antitrust or Section 230 at that point. You know, it was really just talking to people about what these companies were doing, right? Trying to understand the backend wiring of how much data they have on you and what they're able to do with it. Like the entry point for me into the tech conversation was hyper libertarian, right? It's just like so ironic where we've ended up on everyone on all sides of this debate. But for me, it was understanding just what these companies are, because again, it was brand new. The fact that there was no public policy at all, really, right. around what these companies were able to do. And again, this kind of goes back to this idea back during the bank bailouts, right? You know, when you weren't able to question that maybe this wasn't right. Same thing with the tech companies, right? Every conversation around those tech companies at the time, really up until recently, was tech exceptionalism. These are the greatest things in the world. You know, this is changing America for the better. You know, all it's all good. Like, there's absolutely nothing to see here. So by the time we got to the speech censorship question, when, when these companies started aggressing very uh, pointedly against certain types of views and certain types of speech, you know, that was... A lot of the things that I had been working on up to that, up to that point, which is these companies are getting too big and too powerful. Like at some point, the, the pendulum's going to swing and they're going to use it in ways that aren't compatible with, you know, a, a self-governing society or one with pluralistic views or things like that. When that started happening, then it was like, okay, we can actually have this conversation on a broader level. And that's kind of the interesting part about this. The entry point for me to this conversation was, again, this like surveillance concerns. The entry point for the conservative movement as a whole really was the culture war and the tech companies' choices to engage in that culture war. Right. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me, I mean, the, what I've said is that it seems like Josh Hawley almost like, I don't, I don't want to give him too much credit. I don't want to say he single-handedly got the right focus on this issue, but he really did pull weight than anyone else. I mean, was there, was there anyone else in kind of the elected class talking about this issue in, in, in that way before he became a senator in January 2019? Definitely not on a national level. I mean, you had people, you know, I think probably the most, the most conversation that was going on regularly was about child safety. Right. Right. That was sort of like the only sort of systemic conversation of like, well, maybe these platforms aren't always good. It was about the child safety conversation. But Josh Hawley really kicked it up to a national level to like push into the public discourse, the idea that these companies aren't just, you know, golden children, right? <laughs> that they should be, you know, taken to task for any number of things. And, and even just bringing into the public conversation, the idea that as a matter of, you know, public discourse, these companies aren't good. Right, that they're addictive, that endless scroll can have harmful effects, that the algorithms are kicking your kids into like, you know, suicide videos. All these things sort of weren't the conversation wasn't happening at a national level. So I think the election of Josh Hawley and his relentless 
attitude toward these companies really woke up a lot of people to the fact that like maybe there is a public policy concern around what's going on here. Let's take it to a quick break here on the other side with Rachel Bovard. I want to talk about antitrust in particular because that's kind of where the locus of the debate is right now. So stay with us. We're going to dive in on antitrust. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. So, Rachel, I remember this one essay you wrote for the American Conservative maybe a year and a half ago or so. I actually was on a flight back from Warsaw, Poland, of all places, of all places when I read this essay. And the title of this essay is Why Republicans Must Rethink Antitrust. It's just a really straightforward, easily accessible, I find personally compelling argument as to why a kind of old school kind of GOP Chamber of Commerce inspired talking points pablum uh, about, you know, a, a pro corporate at all cost mentality and approach to antitrust simply was not sufficient. If it ever were, if it ever were corrected, it's certainly not sufficient for the current time. So walk us through that argument a little bit. Yeah, this essay is one I'm really proud of and one that kind of was the culmination of probably just a year at that at that point spent talking to practitioners, right? When I really wanted to get into antitrust, I was like, everyone's like, oh, I should read Robert Bork. <laughs> and I was like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go to the conservatives I know that practice antitrust law that are the practitioners that have worked at the FTC, worked at the DOJ. Uh, you know, I sought these people out and I just sat down with them and I said, tell me how it's supposed to work and tell me how it actually works. And that, that essay is sort of again, the culmination of the reflections I had, you know, from from those discussions. And it really gets to the idea that, you know, antitrust is law enforcement for the market. You know, so much of the conversation on the right is that, oh, it's, you know, antitrust is, you know, akin to regulation, that it's the heavy hand of government. And these, a lot of these antitrust lawyers hate that, right? They hate being called regulators because they don't see themselves that way at all. And the case they made to me was, no, regulation is what you get when you don't do sufficient antitrust enforcement, right? Antitrust is designed to be the antidote to regulation. It's supposed to stop all of the things that develop that make you need regulation in the first place. So it, you know, my essay tries to get at what antitrust is supposed to be, and then explain how the modern view of it has been distorted in some ways. And this has been the result of courts over time really narrowing the aperture of enforcement. So if you look at, let's just take the consumer welfare standard itself, right? And this is the Borkian view of antitrust, the Robert Bork theory that, you know, you should enforce antitrust along specifically economic lines. And you know, his view of the, what the consumer welfare standard was, was actually quite broad. You know, it was economically fo- focused, but it also encompassed, you know, consumer choice and quality and, you know, all these things. But over time, the courts have narrowed it such that it's this like tiny, like keyhole that you have to force a case through um, on just these completely speculative economic grounds um, that are more based now on what you know, economists predict may happen versus what's actually happening in the market. And 
you know, as a result, you just see far less enforcement. Um, you know, and and you've had corporate consolidation as a result. You've had the tech companies just buying up their competition left and right. Some of that may have been fine, and some of it may need may have needed some enforcement. And you're seeing that now um, with the FTC trying to challenge mergers retroactively, looking back and saying, "Oh shoot, we should have gone after that." Um, you saw them majorly whiff on Google's acquisition of the ad agency DoubleClick, which has made Google untouchable. Right. You literally can't compete with Google in, in the market now <laughs> because of that. So it's really that essay is sort of a, a, a call to, you know, not dramatically change the way antitrust is enforced, not overturn the consumer welfare standard, for instance, but simply to widen um, statutorily, again, the aperture for how it's done. And it was interesting, um, Bill Barr, uh, in his book, the former attorney general under Trump, cited that essay and wow. he said, this is spot on wow. for how antitrust enforcement is done. And again, it, it's nothing, I'm not, um, it's not my insights, right? I just spent a year literally talking to people about how it's done and I'm reflecting that back in the essay. So so yeah. one thing that you just said that, that our mutual friend Mike Davis also emphasizes over and over again, which I think is a really important point to drive home. You know, the, the Department of Justice has an antitrust division. I mean, antitrust really is best viewed as inherently law enforcement. I mean, the Sherman and Clayton Acts are laws on the books that must be enforced. You know, this is not kind of an abstruse office, you know, deep in the bowels of the Commodities Trading Commission, whatever. No, this is like a core DOJ division that is tasked with enforcing the law to preserve the market, not to kind of bust it up, but to preserve it. So I, th I think that paradigm is just very, very important for folks who are kind of on the fence to bear in mind. But another thing that you mentioned that I, that I just find really interesting, and in your essay you talk about how uh, Bork didn't necessarily say or write what a lot of people ascribe to him as saying. And the analogy that I kind of draw is, it's kind of like zombie Borkism, right? The same way that like there's like zombie Reaganism. You know, President Reagan wasn't necessarily kind of the abstract free trade absolutist ideologue. Wells King of American Compass has this new essay reminding us actually that he, no, he actually imposed like very he heavy tariffs actually on Japanese automobiles to kind of, um, you know, get, get U.S. auto production in the American South back up. So the same way that zombie Reaganism has taken off, to me, like zombie Borkism has taken off as well. So do you want to just briefly elaborate on that? Yeah. So it's the zombie Borkism, I would surmise, basically, is just saying everything's about price, right? If prices are going down, everything is fine. And that's just a very, like, overly distilled version of what Robert Bork actually said. And Bork was not an ideologue about, like, antitrust enforcement. Bork worked on the Microsoft case. Like Bork was right. pro right. antitrust enforcement against Microsoft. And anyone who's like a normal person um, like looking at this understands the idea that antitrust enforcement is like law enforcement in the market. You can't, without it, you can't have a functioning market. This idea that like the market operates without any sort of boundaries or rule of law is just insane. Right. We, we have the rule of law in every other area. You know, you have to if you want a free market, you have to be vigilant about protecting it. That is what antitrust is for. So, you know, again, what Bork did was revolutionary because before Bork, you had, you know, judges sort of enforcing their own values on the market. Right. Using antitrust to say, well, you know, it, I think it should, you know, mean this or mean that because it wasn't sort of the because the Sherman and, and Clayton Acts are very vague. Right. So the judges were sort of infusing or interpreting them in ways that were sort of just swinging the pendulum all over the place. There was like no really consistent standard. So Bork really tried to give a consistent standard and weigh, uh, give antitrust an anchor on economic analysis. But that and, and that I think 
is necessary, right? You do want to have some sort of economic analysis of the market. Like that just makes sense. But it's become over time so narrow to the point where, again, it's, everyone says, oh, it's just about price. If prices are going down, then full stop, it's fine. When in reality, Bork didn't even envision it that way. So it's getting back. Like even if you want to keep Robert Bork's vision of antitrust, and that itself is a debate between the right and the left, right? You have the neo-Brandeisians on the left who say the consumer welfare standard needs to be scrapped entirely, people on the right that don't want to. But even setting that debate aside and just keeping it within the Bork standard, what we have right now is like a shadow, <laughs> like a, a you know half vision of what Bork envisioned anyway. So we need to expand it dramatically. Right. And there, there was legislation just last year, if I recall, from Chuck Grassley and Mike Lee that would statutorily codify this broader conception of the consumer welfare standard by adding in things as additional criteria in addition to price, such as privacy and, and basic things. And, you know, the basic argument when it comes to these technology platforms in particular is that Google and Amazon and Facebook, Meta, whatever we're calling it these days, the, these services are free. I mean, there is no kind of price minimization, traditional kind of antitrust. You know, there's no kind of econ 101 manufacturers selling widgets, supply demand curve. A lot, a lot of those old kind of neoclassical economic models kind of fundamentally are bunk when it comes to the technology debate. But let's kind of get into the weeds a little bit. So we're, we're recording this a week after there was a major antitrust vote in the House. What happened? Talk us through what happened and particularly as it concerns the American right and conservatives. Yeah, this was a really interesting debate on a number of levels. So over the last two years or so, the House and Senate have been working on this package of antitrust bills. Um, you know, there's a there some of them are very broad, having to sort of changing the business model for how these companies do business. And then some of them are extremely marginal and narrow. And what was considered in the House last week was the extremely narrow marginal bills. Um, three of them were in one package together. Basically, it was the barest of the bare minimum that you could, they're sort of like bureaucratic procedural changes. So very briefly, the first one said, look, if you're emerging party uh, and you're getting subsidies from China or any other hostile foreign government, like you have to disclose that. That was one of them. The second one said, basically stopped the tech companies from gaming uh, venues uh, where their cases are heard. And this is specific to state AGs bringing cases. Um, and the third, which is what generated all the light and heat, raised fees on merging firms over a billion dollars. Um, so basically, this says if you're, you know, a big company that's merging, you have a merger that's over a billion, you have to pay a higher fee to have your merger reviewed by the FTC and the DOJ. Smaller firms had their fees reduced. Now, everything fell apart on this. Well, I should say the bills managed to pass, but there was a huge internecine debate on the right over that FTC fee bill because it broke down on lines between you had Congressman Jim Jordan on one side saying this will empower the woke bureaucrats at the DOJ and the FTC. And you had other people on the right saying, um, no, it doesn't actually change the way the FTC is funded. It's subject to a congressional appropriation, just like, you know, everything else. And, the, you know, the bills managed to pass. They only got 39 Republican votes in the House. But I and so what I think this is an important place to focus is because they're potentially dealing with an incoming Republican majority, at least in the House. And you've had for years now Republicans saying, break up these companies. We need to legislate around these companies. We need to do a ton of stuff here. But when presented again with the barest minimum procedural changes to, you know, provide again, very, very limited change to the way things are done, the whole thing falls apart. Um, and so I just, it was interesting because I was talking to one congressman who ended up voting for the bills. And, and, you know, he said, look, you know, do I mind at all that 
these companies are, you know, Lena Khan's going to get under the skin of some of these companies. No, I don't. Because at the end of the day, like, I don't care about these companies. They're coming after me. I'm not going to go to bat to protect them. And that's where I think if the right is really serious about sort of this corporate skepticism that they give a lot of lip service to, again, because of the culture work and these companies, you know, using their power and and their massive consumer base to come up against conservatives and our values and our speech, then you have to, you like, some of that involves giving them a tiny measure of accountability. And that's what these bills were going to do. So this is a, I really think a big decision point for the right. Um, it goes more to a point that's broader than just antitrust. I think it's this whole paradigm shift that's taking place, particularly re- related to business, private industry, corporate power. You know, there has to be a significant shift that's a meaningful one. And that's why I kind of found the debate a little depressing <laughs> last week. But I was happy to see, you know, close to 40 Republicans come out and support those bills. So the obvious question then is, is the right serious? I mean, is the right actually serious about corporate skepticism? And you know, I guess to me, fundamentally, what this comes back to this is this is hardly a, you know, this is hardly an innovative point, but it kind of comes down to this idea that if we are to have lowercase r Republican self governance in America, then we need to govern ourselves, and that that means not just a constitutionally limited government, but it means that corporate America also has to be in its place. Uh, you know, Teddy Roosevelt understood this probably better than any president ever. I mean, he was very much kind of channeling an older line of thought. He understood that the you know the we the people the lofty language of the Constitution, besides the black letter of the law, kind of also had an ethos where if we are to be sovereign citizens, you know, we but we need to kind of reclaim our democracy not just from an unaccountable government, but also from an unaccountable technocracy or an unaccountable corporate America. And, you know, there's there are a lot of major kind of media figures, commentators on our side, folks like Tucker Carlson, who I have no doubt are absolutely genuine and sincere about this. But when push comes to shove, uh, you know, it's tough not to be a little depressed when we hear that only 39 Republicans or whatever kind of supported this fairly mealy-mouthed package, which is not exactly kind of ditching the consumer welfare standard or, or anything like that. So, uh, where, where do we go? I mean, do you think that the right is serious? Can the new right, so to speak, that you and I are a part of, can we actually kind of effectuate a paradigm shift here? I think it comes down to, a, you know, a, a mental shift, honestly, you know, a, between this idea that the threats to liberty can only arise from the government. You know, I think the government can pose a tremendous threat to, to individual liberty, but I do think we're living in an era where you have power centers that don't just exist in the government and particularly ones that exist in the corporate sector that are very willing to work with a partisan government to achieve certain ends. Um, That is an oligarchy, right? That is (laughs) to some definition of fascism. And I think that's what we're up against. And so I think it's, there has to be an awareness of just how high the stakes are that I just hasn't sunk in yet on Capitol Hill. Right. I think they still think, oh, if we threaten the companies with enough oversight, if we bang the drum just a little bit louder, if we, um, you know, push enough transparency on these companies so people can see how much they hate them. Right. Then that'll solve the problem. And it's like, no, it won't. The incentive structure, the traditional incentive structures do not work anymore because these companies are so large and so powerful and so just fundamentally omnipresent in a way that technology has never been. Um, so the the traditional market incentives are not going to work here. The I think the business model is the problem, and the and the and I don't mean problem in the pejorative sense necessarily. I just mean that's the locus of the issue. And I think the for us for the self government, we now have to decide if that's something that we can live with, or that barriers and boundaries should be put up 
in the same way that they were they've been they were put in place for tons of fundamental industries as those technologies and industries developed and that's where we're at no and do i think that the legislature is necessarily there yet no i don't like the federal Repu federally elected Republicans, I think there's only a handful of them that I think really fully grasp the state of this issue. What I, where I am encouraged is at the state level. I talk to state legislators all the time about proposals they're working on. I testify at different, you know, state legislatures about these things. They, they seem to get it. And in many cases, I think the states are going to be the ones that push uh, the Congress to act. Um, and I'm, I'm encouraged by that. Well, you and I are going to continue this conversation actually in person this coming weekend, as the case may be, because I think we're both going to be out in Steubenville, Ohio, for Sorab Amari's conference out there, speaking about the new right in political economy, which I very much look forward to. But before I let you go, because we're running a little short on time here, I want to kind of bring it back to where we started, which is a little more personal. So you became a mother for the first time recently, and you know, <laughs> congratulations, obviously, on that. Literally four months ago yesterday. <laughs> hearty congratulations, and I'm sure, I hope that, that baby Gabriel is, is doing well. I, I want to ask you, to what extent has it either changed or solidified various viewpoints that you've had as far as kind of your conservatism, various policies? Have you have you had any kind of aha moments from being a mother as it comes to kind of your conservative advocacy? Yeah, it's interesting that you asked that. I was just thinking about this the other day. It It has made a lot of the things I think about so much more tangible and particularly when we so much of our public debate on the right is about the the rights of parents right and and over what kids are taught in schools over how we treat kids in the public square are they commodities right to these big tech companies or are they actually children or do we rate how do we raise them as citizens and it's the the most uh primal response i've had to it is is just this fear i never had before you know this fear of of getting it right this fear of sending my child out into the world unprepared or subject to all these forces that are outside of my control and maybe that's every parent maybe that's how every parent feels but it does feel so much more um visceral and primal to me now it, these debates because they really are um you know mama bear right <laughs> you're protecting uh, your child you're not just talking about everybody else's as everybody else's kids so the stakes of it have if it was possible the stakes have become even higher for me now <laughs> well the stakes are higher but there's also no one better to be in the fight than rachel bovard so rachel you're a good friend thanks so much for joining us this week thanks for having me josh As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Thanks again to Rachel Bovard for stopping by. Really cannot recommend Rachel's work more strongly on the off chance that you are not already familiar. It's been, it's been funny to me to kind of see her focus as much as she has on the tech issue in recent years, only because my first exposure to her, as I alluded to earlier on the show, was to her writings and commentary on totally unrelated issues. You know, it's funny because I'm a lawyer and I write and talk a lot about the judiciary and judicial related issues. Rachel is not technically a lawyer, but she understands constitutionalism. She understands the court. She understands what the rights approach to judicial nominations and so forth should be better than probably 95% of my actual lawyer friends on the American right. So she's really just a woman of many talents. 
Let's continue the conversation on the tech issue. So we focused there on antitrust. There's lots of other policy discussions going on right now as pertains to Section 230 of the 1996 Communications Decency Act, which has been a hot topic, not just for the right, but for the left over the past few years. So the upshot in Section 230 is that Section 230 gives an extra legal immunity provision to what the statute refers to as ICSs, Interactive Computer Services, to effectively moderate content for lewd, lascivious, profane, blah, blah, blah content. And then there's kind of this sweeping clause that the courts refer to as the Good Samaritan provision that that the courts have interpreted to effectively allow the platforms to moderate, which means in this case, censor to you know, shadow ban, ban, deplatform, censor, whatever they want for effectively whatever reason. So you can understand why the American right in particular would be up in arms about this. There have been, there's been all sorts of momentum about this to, as to what to do with Section 230. My own proposal is that the extra legal immunity provision should be explicitly tied to a First Amendment standard. And what I mean by that is that if the courts are to be immunized from moderation decisions, then they cannot censor any content that the government itself could not censor if it were said on a sidewalk. That's arguably even required. There's actually an early 1970s U.S. Supreme Court case called Norwood versus Harrison, where the court says that it is axiomatic, it is self-evident, it is axiomatic that the government cannot uh, incentivize putatively private actors to do that which it constitutionally cannot do itself, meaning here censor. So there's an argument that that, that that is already required. So hopefully Congress makes that tweak. Common carrier regulation is really the other issue that is rapidly, rapidly coming to the forefront of the American conscience. And I, I think that, there, that that's a very good thing. It absolutely should be the case. Clarence Thomas talked a little bit about this in a U.S. Supreme Court decision about a year and a half ago called Biden versus Knight First Amendment Institute. There was a case just a couple weeks ago, actually, out of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. That was the court that I clerked on. Judge Andy Oldham writing this really epic 89-90 page, or it was something in the 80s, I don't know, it was a very long opinion for the court, just talking about kind of the old English common law doctrines of common carrier regulation. And the argument is basically that if it applies to the railroads and the telephone companies, it really should apply to Facebook, Amazon, Google, a lot of these major platforms. But the fundamental issue, the fundamental issue, and this is what Rachel and I were talking about here, is one of self-government. That is the best way to view the imperative to, as I have phrased it in the past, to reclaim our democracy, not just from an overweening government, but from technocracy. A disgustingly high percentage of the largest market companies on the New York Stock Exchange, on NASDAQ, are technology companies. And they wield massive, massive power. Thank you again for tuning in this week. I'm Josh Hammer. We'll see you next time.